As lights glow red in the distant background, he sits at the great black grand. Fingers flutter across the keys. Two black men pluck their guitars, tight gold strings, and the percussionist tings the cymbals. Their heads bob, the audience claps, band members pat their shiny black shoes, the silver gold instruments gleam brighter than the spotlight beaming down on the glossy stage the piano's chords in tune in tone better than oh yes than any heart's thump Genius's eyeglasses follow his fingers every moment. Ah, the harmony. Now genius, tall and lean, stands, bows, then thumps onto the seat and thumps the piano. Man, his pants, the color of the piano, sway as if the wind beats them. No one in the audience sits without bobbing their heads as the music progresses while the band's shadow heads rock on curtains turn purple then red everyone walks off stage except the drummer who does his thing drumming until the others come back back playing again that harmony peels the walls bare oh i love it love it can't you hear it too my friends they jamming every now and then the audience erupts the tilted man makes that bass talk that talk my feet tap against the tile floor everybody's fingers pop snap pop popping on into the chill night listen let these words words throb throb in your head until you let go of your rocking clapping self welcome to the a440 podcast the one music podcast everyone can get in tune with that there was Dr. Leonard D. Moore reading his poem, Sunday Evening, for Ramsey Lewis, which he wrote in 1989 after seeing Ramsey Lewis perform at Enloe High School on a rainy Sunday. Leonard is the author of the new poetry collection, The Geography of Jazz, and I sit down to talk with Leonard a bit later in the show, and he'll uh, read a few more poems as well. Now, most Westerners, if they're familiar at all with the term haiku, know it as a poetic form. If they were paying attention in high school, they may even remember that a haiku is broken into three stanzas, three separate lines. These lines are assigned a certain number of syllables. The first line gets five syllables, the second seven, and the third five again. Now, ideally, the haiku bridges two disparate ideas. Ideally, the haiku ends on kiru, or a cutting word, that stops the listener or reader short. This is how haiku is traditionally handled in the West. And of course, like most things, once you learn all this, you realize there are countless variations on the haiku. And the strict 17-syllable structure isn't actually so strict. And a haiku can be a launching point for a much longer work, etc. The point is, haiku means rigid structure. Haiku is meant to be read aloud. Haiku is an ancient poetic form that originated in Japan dating back in its earliest form to the 17th century. Our guest on this episode, Leonard D. Moore, was the first Southerner and first African-American elected president of the Haiku Society of America. He's the executive chairman of the North Carolina Haiku Society, founder and executive director of the Carolina African-American Writers Collective, and co-founder of Washington Street Writers Group. 
He was even awarded the North Carolina Award for Literature, the highest civilian honor bestowed by the state. His new collection, The Geography of Jazz, addresses jazz music in particular, artists like Thelonious Monk, Duke Ellington, and more, but also often conveys the rhythm of jazz through its treatment of the poetic form. Lenard also explores a little-known but innovative poetic form called jazz coup, which recalls Japanese haiku and tanka. It's best heard out loud, which I suppose is why I wanted to focus on it for today's episode. That, and I see the word jazz, and I start foaming at the mouth, hoping maybe I'll get a chance to geek out a little bit about my favorite jazz artists. Lenard's poems, essays, and reviews have appeared in more than 350 publications. He's an associate professor of English at Mount Olive University in North Carolina, not, not too far from Raleigh. So to be honest, I just tried to stay out of the way, ask some questions that weren't too stupid, and most of all, try to learn a little something. Enjoy. Okay, yeah, I'm honored uh, to do this interview. Well, the honor is all mine. Uh, it's not often that I get the uh, a recipient of you know North Carolina's highest civilian award. You know, I, I don't get to talk to those kind of people very often, so it's uh, the honor is all mine. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, so, listen, your uh, your book tour for the geography of jazz. Uh, you're you're touring with a jazz trio. Is that correct? Well, I performed with them a couple weeks ago, back on the ninth of. Uh, uh, August uh, in Winston-Salem at the Haiku North America Conference. Uh, it was uh, Matt uh, Kendrick's uh, trio there in Winston-Salem. And so it was on the Friday night, and it was part of the Carolina Music Festival there in Winston-Salem that goes all month in different locations, different dates. So that was a real good experience. I enjoyed performing with them. I performed with them one other time back in, I believe it was December 2012 in Winston. Did you feel like you were part of the group? Like as a, I mean, as far as listening? Oh, to absolutely. I think we worked well together. So yeah, I felt like it. Yeah, it was like a reunion, I think. Oh, how so? How did, how did that relationship start? Because it seemed like we picked up from where we left off in the last performance. You know, we worked well together. You know, we didn't really have a chance to practice. So we improvised some and, uh, you know, we performed poems from the book and it went well. They played the music and it seemed to gel, uh, work well together. So it was like a conversation, you know. Uh, like a call and response, and then some of it just worked well together. So uh, I feel blessed that that happened, you know. It was one of those nights where it seemed like everything was clicking. Do I hear a uh, regional regional tour coming up here or maybe a studio album? What do you think? Oh, I don't know. Perhaps we'll get another chance to perform together. But I have performed uh, several times with the University of Mount Olive Jazz Band. In fact, back on February 3rd of this year, uh, 2019, we performed at Quail Ridge Books. Uh, and so we performed a couple pieces from the book. And then, uh, you know, some poems from the book and then also some other pieces that I had written uh, previously, uh, some jazz poems. Uh, so we performed those and 
uh, I enjoy working with the uh, University of Mount Olive Jazz Band. So the students are really good. And, of course, the director of the band, Dr. Ford, he's great, too. So I enjoyed it. Tell me a little bit about uh, your collection, The Geography of Jazz. Like, how did it come together? Well, I worked on that collection probably uh, about 20 years. I don't think I work on another collection that long, but... Uh, so, you know, I perform with various jazz bands around the country, you know, New York, uh, Milwaukee. In fact, it must have been about five years ago, I was on Milwaukee Public Television with a uh, saxophonist out of Chicago. And, and so that worked well. And, you know, been in Ohio, uh, a number of places, just all over. And so I enjoy that experience. So I've written some pieces out of that experience. And and then I had some poems already that the uh, groups were able to put music to. So. so I enjoy that experience. And so I listen to jazz quite frequently, uh, just about every day. But, you know, in addition to that, I guess I would say I listen to gospel music every day, too. Uh, <laughs> but I really like jazz. Yeah, what I try to do is capture the rhythm, capture the mood and, and, and the feel of, of the music in my work. So hopefully that's what I'm able to do. Who are some of your favorite jazz artists? It's such a tough well, question. a lot of them are from uh, North Carolina, you know, uh, Nina Simone, Troy, North Carolina, John Coltrane, Hamlet, North Carolina, Thelonious Monk, Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. We could go on and on. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, those are some of my favorites. But then, then too, uh, I really love uh, other music by uh, Miles Davis and some of the others. And, and in fact, uh, you know, I have some tributes in the geography of jazz. You're the um, executive chairman of the North Carolina Haiku Society, among other... Right, and uh, I have titles. been for a long time, probably since about 1994, a long time when I was elected. So just for anyone who's not familiar with haiku, can you just can you talk a little bit about what haiku is in a very, on a very basic level? Well, yeah, it's more than just poems about nature as you know one might learn in elementary sure. school and and it's not really the five seven five syllables the contemporary poets really don't adhere to those uh syllables nowadays you know um, uh, they're usually shorter you know maybe three five three beats uh one japanese scholar said years ago but the uh, the thing about haiku is there's usually two there are usually two parts to it and there is usually a contrast um, as well as a kigo which is a Japanese word k i g o which means season word you know like spring summer winter or fall winter or autumn winter. So it has some kind of season word in there, like firefly. That would be a season word for summer, snow, winter, uh, uh, pollen, spring, uh, pumpkins, fall. You know, so those are kigos or or season words. Uh, So I guess you see what I mean by season word. Can you, are you able to recite a haiku for us, just so we kind of get a sense of what that is? Well, I, I recite one. 
that's re- been reprinted quite a bit, and I don't think I have to explain it. Uh, hot afternoon, the squeak of my hands on my daughter's coffin. Cuts right to it, right? Uh, well, thanks. And what I tried to do, I tried to use more than just two of the sensory perceptions or the senses, you know. You could feel the heat. You could hear the squeak. You could see the cough, and, you know, I can go on and on. So I tried to incorporate more than just two of the five senses. So there are three right there. There's some uh, spirituality to a lot of haiku, right? They're, they're spiritual. You, Absolutely, you you're right. Uh, you see a connection between haiku and sermons as well, right? Mm-hmm, absolutely. And, and also, you know, you've read this, I'm sure. There's a oneness of uh, nature between haiku and, and humans or, or oneness between nature and man, however you want, might want to say that. Uh, but that is there, too, as well as the spirituality uh, and hopefully the haiku uh, will evoke emotions within the reader. So the reader must bring his or her experience to the poem. As a, uh, as a poet, I mean, do you, do you find value in con- the constraint of the form? Uh, well, I feel like, you know, you can use haiku to uh, write better, longer poems, uh, you know, with the economy of language or the conciseness or the... Uh, vividness of imagery or so forth. In fact, I have a haiku sequence in the geography of jazz. And it is titled Jazz Suite. S-U-I-T-E. And if you want me to, I'll read it. Please do. Yeah. Okay. Jazz Suite. Spring cleaning. Tracery of dust on the Duke Ellington bookmark. An Armstrong reframe. A metal lock circles the campus courtyard. Steamy evening. Shadows plastering all the cafe walls. August heat. A record warps on the dashboard. Quartet in the courtyard. Hazy stars. Alone with the moon, concentric circle of dust on old records. Ladybug on the lampshade, last bars of piano. Late winter, a vibraphone opens the set inside the arena. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for asking me to read that poem. Mm-hmm. Well, so tell me then about, you've invented a new hybrid poetic form that you call jazz coup. Tell me about that. Uh, The form is where I kind of work with tanka and haiku together. And, you know, tanka is also a Japanese form of poetry with five lines. And, you know, the haiku would have three lines, uh, at least the American haiku version. The Japanese, uh, I think they write in one line. Uh, but uh, So I try to do something with that, and hopefully I'll leave it up to the scholars, literary scholars and critics to figure out what I was doing there. Uh, but, you know, I hope the poem works, and I hope the 
poem will have, uh, you know, uh, readers can get the feel of the poem. You know, that's what jazz musicians ask when you collaborate with them. What's the feel of the poem? Uh, So, you know, I try to deal a lot with that, uh, the feel, and try to establish a mood uh, uh, in, in the poem and a number of other things. Uh, so that's what I try to do. And, you know, uh, of course, create music in the poem, uh, whether I'm dealing with rhythm or modulation or riffs or syncopation or improvising or, or whatever I might be doing in the poem. Uh, you know, try to create some type of music, uh, whether or not I might employ uh, alliteration or assonance or euphony or or whatever the case might be. Uh, there still should be music in your poem, uh, some type of rhythm, as well as the vivid imagery. And, and you know, I try to create uh, you know, texture in my poems with the more elements I'm able to employ. And I would say not only in poetry, but I think in really all all kinds of writing. I wonder, as a teacher, are you are you encouraging your students to read their work out loud to hear how it sounds? Oh, absolutely! They have to read their work out loud. They have to create a portfolio, and we work in different forms: uh, haiku. Gosel, Sestina, you name it. So I think that's important to, to learn the forms too. The form is like a container. It contains the poem. So you have that container and then you have to put, uh, you know, work with the, the language, the syntax, the diction, all of that, uh, you know, to create the poem within the form itself, you know, just like you have a house and then you have to fill it with furniture and different things, the refrigerator, the the stove, all the things that make the house work and make it function for you. So to make the poem function, we must be able to employ all these elements within the form, the poetic form. I think as a young writer myself, I uh, maybe sort of bucked against the idea of constraint uh, forms. Uh, but I think now that I'm older, I find that form uh, constraint really gives me gives me a lot of freedom. It's it's only when I'm sort of bound by some constraint that I'm sort of able to dig deep and kind of um, kind of discover what the work's actually about. Um, exactly, and that's what I think form does. It there's a sense of discovery there, and I think what happens with form. We write works that we wouldn't have uh, originally written, and and so that sense of discovery, and and I think the poem itself will lead us or take us into certain directions that we wouldn't have gone otherwise. So I think form is good for that matter, too, creating something that we wouldn't have written, and that sense of discovery. That sense of discovery for me is so much about of what you know jazz music is about especially the improvisational style mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. You're just, you don't, you're not necessarily even sure what notes are next right it's that living on the edge right. kind of feeling right that uh absolutely and then you know uh, with that you can bend notes make them your own you know, that the improvising and to experiment and, and all of those things you do with uh, jazz or create some riff where you're repeating or whatever you might do, you know? Mm-hmm. Do you uh, do you listen to music while you write? 
Sometimes I do, but if I do that, it's all instrumental just to create some kind of mood or, you know, some calming situation or some melody. And then I just write, just write, you know, mm-hmm. write. And then a lot of times I write without music. I may go to the library or a specific room or write in my office here on campus or sometimes I walk across campus to the library uh, to write or public libraries or cafes, you know. Uh, So it doesn't matter. I try to get the writing. And I have even written at uh, sporting events. I've written poems at basketball games, football games, trike meets. So, so yeah. So I have to get it down. When the poem wants to come, you have to be ready. So I'm, I'm always ready. You carry notebook, I guess? Oh, absolutely. Uh And ink pens. I find that it has to be kind of boring music if I'm going to write to it or repetitive. You know, I can't, uh, I can't be distracted by it. You know, if it's too interesting (laughs) or like you said, if there are vocals, it's just, it's all, it's game over. I gotta, it's gotta be instrumental. Sure. Yeah. Right. It's it's best to have instrumental. Yeah. Without the vocals, uh, if you want to write. And I tell my students, there is no such thing as writer's block. If you sit there long enough, there's something accompanying. You know, you just sit there, you wait, something will come. Or if you read something, you get inspired. Or if you listen to, you know, some jazz, something will come. Uh, Or if you observe nature, something will come. Uh, You know, or pick up some object like some shells or, or some rocks or you're able to write. So you sit at your desk long enough, as I say, something will happen. Something will come. You will be able to write. So as long as you don't buy into that thing called writer's block, you'll be able to write. And if you do it on a regular basis, the writing will come easily. So the key is to write as often as possible. Show up every day, right? That's the uh, kind of the idea. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I heard somebody say once that writer's block is really, a lot of it is just um, when it's there, it's maybe, it's almost fear of uh, failure or fear that your writing won't live up to the, your idea of what mm. it should be, you know, and that can kind of, I think what you'll find with, well, jazz musicians, for example, in people who improvise is that that fear is, mm-hmm, becomes, mm-hmm. becomes useful, you know, it becomes useful in performance and it, it can be useful to the artist as well, maybe. Right. And you can also go to museums and observe art and and write. So look at an old photograph and write. So there are all kinds of things you can do to, you know, get the creative juices flowing. Well, I want to get you to read a couple poems, but first, can you tell us what's next uh, for you? What's the next project? Well, I've been working on an an anthology to celebrate the Carolina African American Writers Collective. Next year will be the 25th anniversary. Wow, that's congratulations! That's awesome. Well, uh, why don't you go ahead? I'd love to. I'd love for you to read a couple poems to, uh, if you don't mind. I read this one, uh, Raleigh Jazz Festival, 1986, and and really, you know, it's art exposure that happens in Raleigh every year. And at that time, poets were part of uh, art exposure, so you know we were invited to read way back in 1986. But you know the title has to be Raleigh Jazz Festival. 
instead of our exposure. Raleigh Jazz Festival, 1986. On Fedville Street Mall, a lean man bobs his head. His sack shines, polished copper and a sunbeam. Rhythm, a splendid rising, echoing against concrete. The trumpeteer inches across the homemade platform. His angled jaw swerves and slacks. His notes, perfect geometry for dancing. People snap their fingers. They are baseline, vibrating autumn. Pigeons peck peanuts, drum beaks on the sidewalk. The musicians blast into sky, ripple red leaves loose from a stand of trees, glow in the sunset, play vamps as earthlings will do. All right, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. I'll read this poem uh, back on May 13, 2000. Uh, Shaw University awarded Ray Charles an honorary uh, degree uh, at their graduation. And so he also played uh, music there. Uh, so here's the poem I wrote at the graduation. So as you can imagine, I write at all kind of ceremonies to an event. So here's the poem. Ray Charles accepts honorary degree. Shaw University, May 13, 2000. With help, he climbs the stage. They stand, a community crowd, clapping an ovation. The black piano's bars resonate. The crowd bows. King Charles rocks back and forth. A royal song over Ray's raspy syllables. Graduates scream in tribute. Dance. Four-year prayers. Lights in this civic center. Graduates sway, shine, revere. An audience of old faces blending in tone in air. And this one is called Zora Shango. It's really a poem uh, in tribute to uh, the poet who wrote uh, for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. Uh, so I read that uh, for Intazaki Shango. Uh, so the poem is Zora Shango. Words float from blues, indigo leak sheets, lit sheets of paper, silk spins focal breath, swaying symbols of script. She slow drags notes from the clarinet of her throat into winter air. Her voice resonates off cinder block. Jim Walls feels our ear drums reverberates this modulating night. This modulating night reverberates, bending back. She stomps the stage planks again, again. Her caftan levitates the mic bobs around the stand as she scats and she scats. 
And that's our show. Thanks again to Lenard D. Moore for joining me on today's episode. The reissue of his poetry collection, The Geography of Jazz, is coming out soon from Blair Publisher. And when it does, you'll be able to get it from an independent bookstore near you or on Amazon.com. And when it does, we'll be sure to include a link to it uh, from the episode page on our website, a440pod.com. Be sure to download today's episode and tell your music-loving friends to do the same Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, A440Pod. Thanks so much for listening. Let's jam again soon.